Thanks for joining us on the Crenshaw Christian Center New York podcast. And remember these words, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's jump into the lesson. Well, we're going to continue our study on these 12, a closer look at 12 ordinary men. Now, last the last two weeks, you have the opportunity to look at a movie with the title of Paul, the Apostle of Christ, which definitely should have left you with a lot of different questions and thoughts. Um, and we're gonna entertain some of those tonight. Not a whole lot, because I wanna continue moving on with this, and um, well, you'll see. Right now, we're gonna pick up where we left off, and the last time we were together, we were talking a little bit about, um, we're talking a lot about really Peter and uh, Peter's personality and the fact that we could see how he was innately having raw material to really be a leader. And it's not a mistake in any way, shape, or form that he was in fact the leader of the 12. And we talked about different things with leadership. Um, one of the things that we mentioned, uh, well, let me see. I want to back up a little bit. Peter, okay, I, I have to bring up this point. Peter was the one who did what? He asked more questions than all of the other apostles combined. He literally did. It was usually Peter who asked the Lord to explain his difficult sayings. The thing in a way that I could appreciate about Peter is that Peter always pushed the envelope. He never just sat in class with his hands folded and it's like, come what may. He was always pushing and he even pushed the master. Um, and some people don't necessarily like that about Peter or can appreciate that about Peter, but I do because for this simple fact, he would not have gained some of the knowledge from Jesus that he did had he not been that person to push the envelope. And sometimes when you think about it in life, if you just sit and accept what's given you, you know, you just sit there and accept it, I mean, that's okay. Some people like mediocrity. They just wanna live a life like that and that you're entitled to do that. But if you want more, and I don't mean more, I'm not suggesting more stuff. Whenever you hear me say more, I am not talking about getting more stuff. I'm talking about getting more when it comes to the things of God. Spiritually, maturing, that's what I mean. When you want more, you've got to push a little bit. You know, anybody who's ever had the privilege of um, having a child and, and actually birthing them into this world, we realized some pushing had to be involved. It wasn't like we just said, okay, now it's time for the baby to be born. Let's just go to the hospital. We're just gonna sit here and plop, it's gonna come out, no. There's a lot of sometimes gnashing of teeth and everything else before you get the joy of holding that precious little bundle of joy. Well, when it comes to your spiritual walk, sometimes you've gotta do a similar thing. You've gotta push yourself. So I appreciate that part about Peter, and we're gonna see where um, that comes into play again. So Peter was the one, he asked all kinds of weird questions, like he was the one who asked what kind of reward the disciples were actually going to get since they left everything to follow Jesus. And we talked about that. That, I'm not gonna read it again tonight, but that was in Matthew's Gospel, the 19th chapter and verse 27. 
Matthew 19, 27 says that. It was also Peter who asked about the withered fig tree. Now see, that, I thought, was extremely important because the other disciples saw what happened. They were there, it wasn't just Peter, but they were just willing to accept the fact that, okay, Jesus said that the withered, you know, that the tree was to die and bear no more fruit, and that's okay, but Peter wanted to know, well, why? How come that is? He pushed it, but look at what he learned. That I'm gonna read. Turn with me to Mark's Gospel, and we're gonna look at the 11th chapter, and we're going to read verses 21 through 25. Now, Mark 11, 23, 24, everybody knows because we're all into petition prayer. So we all know those verses because they support the fact that when we're asking for something, when we pray, the Lord is gonna grant it unto us. But this I'm gonna share with you, the last time I shared it out of the message, this time I'm gonna share it out of the Amplified because again, the Amplified does what? It gives us the qualifier. So Mark 11, starting with verse 21 out of the Amplified says this, and remembering, Peter said to him, Rabbi, master, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Jesus replied, have faith in God. Now, this is the qualifier. Have faith in God constantly. Not have faith in God when you're kind of thinking about it. And see, to me, that's so important because again, if you're in the midst of believing God for something, I don't care what it is, whether it's physically, financially, spiritually, emotionally, whatever, you have to have faith constantly. It cannot be sporadic. So that's very, very clear. Verse 23, I assure you and most solemnly say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart. What does that mean? Here's the qualifier. In God's unlimited power, that's what you're not supposed to doubt in. It's not just a matter of, I've said it, so therefore I'm not doubting that I've said it. No, that's, that's only one part of it. You have to have no doubt in the unlimited power of God. That's the qualifier. But believes that what he says is going to take place, it will be done for him. Here's the qualifier. In accordance with God's will. So again, if you're believing for something that doesn't line up, well, we know that's not gonna work. So verse 24, for this reason I am telling you, whatever things you ask for in prayer, the qualifier, in accordance with God's will, believe with confident trust that you have received them and, you will, and they will be given to you. Whenever you stand praying, this is where most people don't talk about verse 25, Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. What does that mean? It means this, drop the issue, let it go. Couldn't be more plain than that, okay? So that your father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions and wrongdoings against him and others. I like that, drop the issue and let it go. How often do you have huh, intense fellowship with someone and you claim you forgive them, but you remember and bring it back up. It could be five years later. You remember almost the date and time. You know you said so and so and so and so. Okay, which means you didn't really forgive them because if you did, the word says we're supposed to do what? Drop the issue and let it go. So if you let it go, it's over. I mean, I, I thought that that was really, really very, very important. So anyway, um, oh God. Peter constantly, in doing that, here's the thing that I thought 
he would not have found out. He would not have found out had he not asked that question. The power that he himself, or any of us for that matter, have with what it is that we say when we speak. And we talked about that a little bit last time, but it always bears repeating. Anything that you speak out of your mouth, expect it to be. So I stand before you, and my body is being a little challenged. So I may cough a little bit, maybe. I'm not anticipating it because I stand before you as the healed of the Lord. And that is what I have been telling myself, and my body has no choice but to line up with that because that is what I expect. That is what I say. I am not saying how I feel because that is irrelevant. What is relevant is what the truth of the matter is, which is that I am the healed of the Lord. The point being is what we say is what we have. So we've got, you know, you hear that, I've heard that, and you know, you may have heard that for 50 years, but until it becomes true rhema to you, you do not understand the importance of exactly what that is. Anything at all, and you've heard me say this and you'll hear me say it again, anything at all that you want in this earth realm, anything, it's in your mouth. You just simply have to say it. So, I mean, because we're made in the image and likeness of our father, right? And what did he do? He spoke into existence what he wanted. So we can't rewrite or change that. That's just how it is. So anyway, I think that that's good that, Pete, that Peter did that because that's something that he found and he discovered that the poor other little disciples would have just sat there and it never would have even dawned on them. He also asked questions of the risen Christ. Turn with me to John's Gospel, the 21st chapter, and we're going to look at verses 20 through 23. This is John's Gospel, chapter 21, verses 20 through 23. And out of the Amplified, starting with verse 20, Peter says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Now we already know that that disciple was who? It was John. The one who also had leaned back on his chest at the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? So when Peter saw him, he asked Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? What is in his future? And I love this. <laughs> Jesus said to him, if I want him to stay alive until I come again, what is that to you? You follow me. So this word went out among the brothers that this disciple, John, was not going to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not going to die, but only if I want him to stay alive until I come again, what is that to you? What I liked about it was Jesus very nicely and sweetly, he didn't get all upset, just put him into his place and was pretty much saying it's none of your business, okay? Meaning you just, you follow me. That's all you need to do. Don't worry about everybody else. We could all learn from that, you know? Like we're so concerned when we see somebody going somewhere with something, well, how come they're getting to go? And why is it that they're sitting over there? And why, why do you care? That's not why you come to, you know, you don't come to church for all that. You're supposed to be coming for the word. So what do you care about all the rest of that? Yet and still, people do. So there's a lot that we can learn from that. So I kind of like that. But again, Peter did what? He asked. At least he didn't sit there and start talking amongst everybody else. He just went directly to the master and he asked. Now, another necessary ingredient of a leader, which is very important, is initiative. It's not just inquisitiveness. That's one characteristic, fine. You ask questions, that's great. But you have to have some initiative. A, a man 
if he is wired for leadership, he also is going to have drive, ambition, and energy. A true leader must be the kind of person who does what? He makes things happen. He's a starter. Notice that Peter not only asked questions, but he was usually the first one to answer any question posed by Christ. He often charged <laughs> right in there, where angels even feared to tread, you'd find Peter. There was that well-known occasion when Jesus asked Matthew, turn with me to Matthew, this we can learn something from this, turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, the 16th chapter. And we're going to kind of take this verse by verse for three verses. So Matthew 16, we're going to look at verse 13. And I'm going to read it to you first out of the King James Version and then the message. So if we look at it, Matthew 16, verse 13, out of the New King James Version, it says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of God, am. The message says when Jesus arrived in the villages of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, what are people saying about who the Son of Man is? Once Jesus posed the question, several opinions were circulating among the people. I mean, you know, you ask people a question, they are going to start thinking about it. So verse 14, so they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And the message says, he replied, some think he is John the baptizer, some say Elijah, some Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. It was at that point that Peter boldly spoke out above the rest. And in verse 16, what does he say? <clears throat> Excuse me. Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And in the message it says, Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. The other disciples were still processing the question, like little children afraid to speak up in case they gave the wrong answer. Have you ever done that? You know, you sat in school and the teacher asks a question and you sit there and you're like, okay, well, she's not really watching me, so. I'm just going to sit here and look like I'm writing something. Hopefully she won't really, because I'm not going to answer that, because I think it's that answer, but I don't really know. Okay, I've done that. So if you have it, good for you. But the point is, that's what the other 11 were known sometimes for doing. But not Peter. He was definitely going to just come right out with whatever it was that he had to say. Peter was bold, and he was decisive. That's a vital characteristic with great leaders. Think about it. If you want to follow someone, even if you're, okay, we leave here, and somebody tells you that you need to go uptown, and you need to be at a specific address, and you have no idea where that is, you don't want to follow somebody like me who really doesn't know where it is, <laughs> who's sitting there trying to figure out, okay, uptown. Okay, I know, that means the numbers go up, right? I mean, you want to go and follow someone who knows exactly where they're going, okay? Well, that's leadership. And if somebody is fronting and acting like they are a leader, but they really don't know, after a while, again, you can locate people by their conversation, you can definitely locate them by their actions. So, you know, it becomes very clear. Sometimes people may have a role of leadership, 
but still not be really a leader. And that's okay, you can still love them anyway, but you just need to know the difference so that you know how to conduct your life. I mean, that's clear. Um, sometimes Peter had to take a step back, undo, retract, or even be rebuked. The fact that he was always willing to grab opportunity by the horns marked him a natural leader. Now take, for instance, the scene of the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Roman soldiers from Fort Antonia came to arrest Jesus. The first three gospel writers state that there was a great multitude armed with swords and clubs. Turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, the 26th chapter, and let's look at verse 47. Matthew 26, verse 47, the New King James Version, it says, and while he was still speaking, meaning Jesus, behold, Judas, one of the 12, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. And the Amplified says the same thing. As Jesus was still speaking, Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came as representatives from the chief priests and elders of the people. If we look at it in Matthew, because again, these are the three gospels, Math, I mean not Matthew, Mark. Mark's gospel, the 14th chapter, verse 43. Mark 14, verse 43, and the New King James Version says, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. The same thing is really said, well, no, this is what I like about the uh, Amplified, because it says, and at once, while he was still speaking, Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, came up with him, came and with him, a crowd of men with swords and clubs, who came from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the Sanhedrin. Remember we talked about the Sanhedrin before? So this gives us a little bit more information because we now know who these elders were, okay? They were, in fact, from the Sanhedrin. Then if we look in Luke's gospel, Luke 22, verse 47, starting in the New King James Version, Luke 22, verse 47 says, and while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he was, and who, oh gosh, and he who was called Judas, one of the 12, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him, which is really just so aggravating because a kiss on either the cheek or the hand was usually an act of homage and a common gesture of greeting and reverence given to a rabbi by his disciples, but done here to identify Jesus. So it was almost like the biggest smack in the face because it's like you took something that was meant to be done in reverence and in homage, and that's what you used to betray him, which, oh, very, very interesting. But in any event, here's a little sidebar. Does anyone, <clears throat> does everyone know where the, location, where the location of Fort Antonia was or what its significance was during this time? Not really, right? Okay. Well, since you just saw the movie about the Apostle Paul, and you know, I thought you might want more detail, only because I wanted more detail, because when I read about Fort Antonio, I'm like, okay, what is that about? 
Okay, so here's the deal. On the apostle, meaning the apostle Paul now, on his third missionary campaign, which ended in Jerusalem, he was happily embraced by his brothers there. But they presented him with the problem. See, we as Christians have challenges, but back then they were not born again and spirit-filled, so they had problems, okay? Here was his problem. His reputation had preceded him. Now see, that's interesting because our reputations precede us. Wherever we go, your reputation is preceding you. So the report had spread that Paul, this particular apostle, was antagonistic to the Jewish system. In order to disarm a volatile situation, it was suggested, and Paul agreed, to submit to a ceremonial cleansing in the temple, as was the custom for Jews who had traveled among the Gentile lands. Now see, we can learn a lot from Paul at this point too, because Paul, we know, was a Jew who understood and accepted Jesus. We get all that, and he taught that. We understand that. However, he, because he still was born a Jew, still utilized or participated or understood and respected Jewish custom. It's sort of like if I'm going somewhere to teach and I go into an environment where if I wore slacks, I would be looked at as, oh my gosh, then guess what? I won't. I'll go ahead and I'll wear a dress and pray for them. No, I'll go ahead and I'll wear a dress. Or if I go somewhere and they would look at me terrible if I had on nail polish or if I wore any kind of makeup, I'd really pray for them because if they had to see me without this, oh Lord. But anyway, the point is you still, wherever you are, you do not want to do something where you will take the message away, where people can't receive from you because you're violating what they believe. You just don't do that. Paul did not do that. He was very conscious of that. He was very conscious of that. So when the brothers had brought this to his attention, he decided, okay, I'll go through this whole normal cleansing system and everything because I don't want to create a challenge. And we see this, if you actually look in Acts, the 21st chapter, and this, this is also, this shows us so much, because remember the book of Acts is written by Luke. And Luke, oh, I just had such an appreciation, I have such an appreciation for Luke, because he never met Jesus, as you saw in the movie, he really did not. So all of his writings tend to be extremely precise, even though we'll see there are certain things he leaves out. And we can only wonder why did he leave certain things out? Was it because he wanted us to just interpret it, or is it just some of those secret things that we're not to know until we actually meet with the Lord? That we don't know. But the point is, he was very, very, very precise in a lot of his writing. So if we look at Acts 21, and we look at verse 26 out of the Amplified, it says, then Paul took the four men, and the next day he purified himself along with them by submitting to the ritual. He went into the temple to give notice of the time when the days of purification ending each vow would be fulfilled and the usual offering would be presented on behalf of each one. Now the message breaks it down a little bit more and it says, so Paul did it, took the men, joined them in their vows and paid their way because you also had to pay for this. It wasn't something that did not come with a cost. 
Paul actually went the extra mile and paid for these four men as well as himself. The next day, he went to the temple to make it official and stay there until the proper sacrifices had been offered and completed for each of them. This act of benevolence hardly appeased the Jews. They weren't buying it. Paul is grabbed by an angry mob of them. They jump to the conclusion that he has taken a Gentile into an area of the temple reserved only for Jews. And by doing this, he, they feel as if he's polluted the holy sanctuary. A quick acting detachment of Roman soldiers actually save him because they rescue Paul from the angry mob. Now, back to Fort Antonio. Here's the deal with that. In 13, and you can write this down if you're a note taker. In 35 BC, King Herod rebuilt the Barris, a strong fortress to protect the Temple Mount. It was located on the northwest corner of the Temple Mount and called the Fortress of Antonia, named after Herod's friend Mark Anthony and another of Herod's landmarks. It stood 115 feet high and was partly surrounded by a deep ravine 165 feet wide. A deep ravine, it was really like a moat, okay, that was going around, just to give you a, a different way of looking at it. It functioned as headquarters for the Roman soldiers, a palace and a barracks. Herod constructed a secret passage from the fortress to the temple. While overlooking Jerusalem, the Antonia Fortress was garrisoned with 600 Roman soldiers who watched over the temple courts in order to preserve order. The Bible spoke about Antonia Fortress as a barracks in Acts 21:37, And it was here that Paul gave an address to the people, which I'm going to read to you in a minute. It is believed, <clears throat> excuse me, that it was here at the Antonia Fortress where Pontius Pilate judged Jesus. But it's, there, it's also a possibility that Jesus was judged at the Herodian fortress on the opposite end of the city. Herod's palace was the official residence of the Roman procurators, excuse me, when they came to Jerusalem during the major Jewish festivals. Now you're saying, what's the big deal about this? Listen to what they did. The holy ceremonial robes of the high priest were kept in one of the four guard towers of the Antonia Fortress and were worn only on Passover, Yom Kippur, and other important religious feast days. The Romans had realized the tremendous power of the office of the high priest and had taken custody of the garments as a precautionary measure. In the century before the Roman occupation in 63 BC, the king of Israel had also been the high priest, and both offices had been hereditary. The Romans had abolished the kingship and had made the office of high priest appointive, always subject to their approval. Nonetheless, in Jesus' day, the high priest remained the most powerful figure in the Jewish nation. Is it no wonder that Jesus is our high priest? See, it's, it's connecting all the dots to me that make it so extremely 
interesting. I, I mean, I find it extremely interesting. So back to what I just said here. If you look at Acts 21, verse 37, this is when Paul was about to be led into the barracks, according to the New King James Version. And he said to the commander, may I speak to you? And the commander, he replied, can you speak Greek? So also the easy to read version, I like this. Because the easy to read version has a different way of saying things. And it said, when the soldiers were ready to take Paul into the army building, or the barracks, he asked the commander, can I say something to you? And the commander said, oh, you speak Greek? I could just imagine him saying it in that kind of little sassy way, like, oh, yeah, like now you speak Greek? <laughs> I just, so to me, I, I like that version. This is what Paul did, though. This really gives you a lot of explanation about Paul. Acts 21, 22, rather, the 22nd chapter of Acts. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 21 out of the Living Bible. And he says, brothers and fathers, this is Paul speaking, listen to me as I offer my defense. When they heard him speaking in Hebrew, the silence was even greater. I am a Jew, he said, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, but educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel, at whose feet I learned to follow our Jewish laws and customs very carefully. I became very anxious to honor God in everything I did, just as you have tried to do today. And I persecuted the Christians, hounding them to death, binding and delivering both men and women to prison. The high priest or any member of the council can testify that this is so. So I asked them for letters to the Jewish leaders in Damascus with instructions to let me bring any Christians I found to Jerusalem in chains to be punished. As I was on the road nearing Damascus, suddenly about noon, a very bright light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Who is it speaking to me, sir? I asked. And he replied, I am Jesus of Nazareth, the one you are persecuting. The men with me saw the light but didn't understand what was said. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord told me, get up and go into Damascus and there you will be told what awaits you in the years ahead. I was blinded by the intense light and had to be led into Damascus by my companions. There a man named Ananias, as, a godly, as godly a man as you could find for obeying the law and well thought of by, the Jew, by all Jews of Damascus, came to me and standing behind, beside me said, Brother Paul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I could see him. Then he told me, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the Messiah and hear him speak. You are to take his message everywhere, telling what you have seen and heard. And now, why delay? Go and be baptized and be cleansed from your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. One day after my return to Jerusalem, while I was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw a vision of God saying to me, hurry, leave Jerusalem, for the people here won't believe you when you give them my message. But Lord, I argued, they certainly know that I'm imprisoned and beat those in every synagogue who believed on you. 
And when your witness, Stephen, was killed, I was standing there agreeing, keeping the coats that laid aside as they stoned him. But God said to me, leave Jerusalem, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Moving forward, we were going to do a brief study concentrating on the Apostle Paul because there is so much to learn about this man. Yes, we know he wrote so much of the New Testament, but there is so much to learn about him. But for right now, let's go back to the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane and the leader of the 12 ordinary men, our dear Peter. Now, we read in three of the Gospels that a great multitude or crowd was present with Judas Iscariot, right? We just talked about that. Keep in mind, though, that a typical Roman cohort consisted of 600 soldiers. So in all likelihood, there were hundreds of battle-ready Roman troops in and around the garden that night. How do you think Peter felt about what he saw? Scared? Well, this is Peter. <laughs> so without a moment of hesitation, he didn't even think about it, without a moment, he pulled out his sword and took a swing at the head of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Now, the high priest and his personal staff, they would be in front of the mob, because think about it. He was the dignitary ordering the arrest, so that's why he would be in the front. So Peter really was most likely trying to cut the man's head off. However, <laughs> Peter was a fisherman, not a swordsman. <laughs> so Malchus ducked, and his ear was severed instead. So what did Jesus do? He touched his ear, and he healed him. I mean, Jesus has always been the same. If you, and you'll find that in Luke 22, 51. Um, Jesus replied, stop, no more of this. And he touched the ear and he healed him. But I like this because Jesus had a statement for Peter. And it's not like he was evil sounding. Well, he couldn't be, it was Jesus. But he, he just answered him in a way and he gave him something to think about. And I like it. Turn to Matthew's gospel, the 26th chapter. And we're going to look at verse 52, Matthew 26, verse 52. In the Amplified, it says, then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all those who habitually draw the sword will die by the sword. And if we look at it in the Message Bible, it says, Jesus said, put your sword back where it belongs. All who use swords are destroyed by swords. Don't you realize that I am able right now to call to my father and 12 companies more if I want them? A fighting angels would be here battle ready? But if I did that, how would the scriptures come true that say this is the way it has to be? Now, the thing that I think is so interesting, we always don't realize that there really is nothing new under the sun. And you will hear the expression used, like, for instance, if you look at a game of basketball, because it's the playoffs right now, and I like basketball, so we're going to have a basketball reference, okay? Um, you would hear somebody say that a basketball team could win or lose by the three-point shot, 
okay? In the sense that it's the same thing as saying, and really you can even think about it when we look at people, <laughs> excuse me, who are not, <clears throat> excuse me, believing about gun control. People who walk around carrying guns, shooting up at people, unfortunately, they're usually people who die the same way by a gun. This is wonderful. The words that you speak, you live by those words, which is why it's so important you are careful of what you say. Because what you put in your mouth is what you live, because that is what is returned and manifest. So we can learn a lot just by what it was that he said to Peter at that point. So think about the incident for a moment. There are literally hundreds of Roman soldiers present. What did Peter think he was really going to do? Behead them all one by one? Sometimes in Peter's passion for taking the initiative, he overlooked the rather obvious big picture realities. He just didn't see it. But with all his brashness, Peter had the raw material from which a leader could be made. It is better to work with a man like that than to try to motivate someone who is always passive and hesitant. As a familiar saying goes, it is much easier to tone down a fanatic than to resurrect a corpse. <laughs> That's true, right? I mean, because think about it. You can have somebody fanatical, you can kind of tone them down. But resurrecting a corpse, that's a lot of work, OK? So, so some people have to be dragged tediously into any kind of forward motion. Certainly not Peter. He always wanted to move ahead. A key point is that he always wanted to know what he did not know. See, that's something that's really good, too, because a lot of people you know, you have that, what is that expression? Ignorance is bliss? No, ignorance, hmm. Because some people don't want to know what they don't. They're just satisfied with whatever they know, and that's it. He wasn't that way, and a true leader isn't. They do want to know what they don't know. He wanted to understand what he did not understand. That's why he asked about the fig tree, because he didn't understand it. He wanted further understanding, and further understanding is what he got. He was the first to ask questions and the first to try to answer questions. He was a man who always took the initiative, seized the moment, and charged ahead. That's the stuff of leadership. Remember, these characteristics are only the raw materials from which a leader is made. Peter needed to be trained and shaped and matured. Okay, That was important. But to do the task Christ had for him, he did need some moxie, chutzpah, and courage to stand up in Jerusalem, think about this, to stand up in Jerusalem on Pentecost and preach the gospel in the face of the same population who had lately executed their own Messiah. Think about that. We don't even want to go talk to our cousin, okay, who's somebody <laughs> who we know, all right? We don't even want to say anything to them. But here, this is what this man did. But Peter was just the sort of guy who could be trained to take on that kind of courageous initiative. Now, there's a third important element of the raw material that makes a true leader, and that's involvement. True leaders are always in the middle of the action. They do not sit in the background telling everyone else what to do 
while they live a life of comfort away from the fray. Think about it. Even if you look at somebody in the military, and we have five-star generals, somewhere along the line, they're out there giving the orders. They're not just sitting at home looking at you know, what's on CNN and then calling in some order. They are in the midst of it. That's what makes them true, really, really good leaders. A true leader goes through life with a cloud of dust around him. That is precisely why people follow him. People cannot follow someone who remains distant. The true leader must show the way. He goes before his followers into battle. Jesus came to his disciples one night, and we all know this story. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> In the middle of the Sea of Galilee, walking on the water, in the midst of a violent storm. Now think about this. Who out of all of the, of the disciples jumped out of the boat? Peter. There's the Lord, he must have thought. I'm here. I've got to go where the action is. The other disciples, what did they do? They, were wonder they wondered if they were seeing a ghost. And that's documented if you go to Matthew's Gospel, the 14th chapter, Verse 26, in the Amplified it says, when the disciples saw him, meaning Jesus, walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. The message says, meanwhile, the boat was far out to sea when the wind came up against them and they were battered by the waves. At about four o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. They were scared out of their wits. A ghost, they said, crying out, in terror. But Peter asked the Lord, again, he's pushing that envelope. He's trying to find out what he does not know. So he asked the question. He asked the Lord, and he once again took the initiative. So you're already in Matthew, just drop down to the next verse, 27, verses 27 through 29 in verse 14. And this is out of the Amplified. But immediately he spoke to them, meaning Jesus, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter replied to him, Lord, Peter's pushing the envelope again. If it is really you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. And if we look at it in the message, but Jesus was quick to comfort them, meaning the disciples, courage, it's me, don't be afraid. Peter, suddenly bold, said, Master, if it's really you, call me to come to you on the water. He said, come ahead. Jumping out of the boat, Peter walked on the water to Jesus. But when he looked down at the waves, churning beneath his feet, he lost his nerve and started to sink. He cried, Master, save me. Now, before anyone knew it, Peter was out of the boat walking on the water. The rest of the, the disciples were still clinging to their seats, trying to make sure they didn't fall overboard in the storm. That was literally what their thought process was. But Peter was out of the boat without even giving it a second thought. That is what you call involvement, serious involvement. Only after he left the boat and walked some distance did Peter think about the danger and start to sink. Now, oftentimes, people look at this incident, and they automatically start criticizing Peter's lack of faith. Have you ever heard that? Yeah. Mm. But let's give him credit. 
for leaving the boat in the first place. Before we talk about Peter for the weakness that almost brought him down, we ought to remember where he was when he began to sink. He was walking on the water. It wasn't until he started to look at the circumstances and started to process it that he began to sink. And that's why it always remains one of my favorite stories, because all of us have that same opportunity in any situation to walk on the water with Jesus. And we will always walk on the water with him until we start looking at everything else around us. And then we're not in faith constantly like we read over there before. And that is when we begin to sing. So we really have to give him some credit because he did get out of the boat instead of everybody else sitting over there on their hands, crying and screaming, you know. We should also consider that although, this is another thing about Peter, he denied Christ. Keep in mind one significant fact. He and one other disciple, probably his lifelong friend John, were the only ones who followed Jesus to the high priest's house to see what would become of Jesus. The rest of them didn't even have the initiative to do that. And that we find in John's Gospel, the 18th chapter, verse 15. And in the Amplified of John 18, verse 15, it says, Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Now that disciple was known to the high priest, so he went with Jesus into the courtyard of the residence of the high priest. And everybody, no matter where I look, they most likely know it was John, okay, because he's also the author of this particular gospel. This is kind of like common sense. If we look at it in the message, Simon Peter and another disciple followed Jesus. That other disciple was known to the chief priest, and so he went in with Jesus to the chief priest's courtyard. Peter had to stay outside. Now, Peter, think about it. Peter knew he didn't know who this chief priest was, but did that stop him? No, he wanted to know what was going on with Jesus, so he went whether he knew him or not. Then the other disciple, meaning John, went out, spoke to the doorkeeper, and got Peter in. Peter would have never gotten in if he hadn't, <laughs> excuse me, done what? Had the initiative to go forward and go in. So again, to me, Peter did something that most people wouldn't do. In the court, yeah, okay, well you know what? We're gonna stop right there and we will continue when we come back. Our hope is that you received something that you could apply to your life and strengthen your faith. At Crenshaw Christian Center, New York, we believe that the Word of God is practical for everyday application. Feel free to stay in touch with us via social media, or you can give us a call at 212-749-9323. If you're in the New York area, you're welcome to join us at one of our services. Our Sunday morning service is at the New Yorker Hotel at 9.45 a.m. That's on 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City. Thanks again for listening, and remember, walk by faith, not by sight.